Thank you. I wish to I wish to extend a warm welcome to all the parents who have joined us this evening. The welcome is, however, tinged with sadness tonight as one of our students lost her father this morning. I know that her friends and classmates will be keeping her and her family in their thoughts and in their hearts this weekend, especially as so many of us will be with our families these few days. I'm here first before the lecture is introduced to remind you of, few of, the, of a few of the weekend's activities and to invite your participation in them. All of you have a little brochure if you registered uh, advising you of the week's activities. If you have not, uh, there is still registration that will be held in the Great Hall up at McDowell Hall uh, tomorrow between 9 in the morning and noon. Uh, but I'll give you a, a brief list of the a preview. I don't know that I dare, but I see that parents are welcome at the Halloween waltz tonight, so please uh, join. This is tomorrow night. Well, forget this schedule. <laughs> and then you can remind me if I've got any of the rest of this uh, right or wrong. Uh, but uh, uh, tomorrow morning at 1030, we hope that all of you will be joining us for a seminar on Plato's Republic, book one. All the seminars will be held in McDowell. And in your registration packets, you should have some information which will tell you the room number uh, where you should go. And we hope that students will join parents in those seminars as well. That will be followed by a buffet lunch, uh, which will be held both in the lobby here, in the, uh, outside the auditorium, and in the dining hall. At 1.45, we will have a meeting with the uh, dean, some members of the instruction committee, uh, with me. But we'll be limiting uh, the discussion to uh, matters on the program. So please come with questions about the program of instruction, and we'll discuss the curriculum, the books, uh, our ways in the classroom. Now that you've had an opportunity, uh, those of you who are parents of freshmen, uh, to get a little glimpse of classes during uh, the day today or to talk with your students about their experiences during the first uh, few weeks of school. By 3 o'clock, there'll be classes on Euclid's Elements. These will be led by students, so we hope that you'll go to those. Those will also all be held in McDowell Hall. If you'd rather, there'll be a tour of the art gallery at the same time, at 3 o'clock, or a tour of downtown Annapolis. The art gallery, of course, is right here, Mitchell Gallery outside the auditorium, and the gathering for the tour will be right in the lobby outside the auditorium as well. We encourage you to take your students to a restaurant uh, Saturday night. I hope that uh, they will know their way around town to direct you to uh, the best and finest of establishments. Tomorrow morning, or Sunday morning, uh, I invite you to a brunch, which will be held in the lobby for parents and students. We hope you'll enjoy the weekend, walking around the campus, touring Annapolis. Uh, please let me or other tutors or the dean know of any stories you have to share, uh, any questions you might have. Uh, we'd be happy to talk with you over the course of the weekend. Welcome. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Leon Cass, who teaches at the University of Chicago. 
both in the undergraduate college and in the Graduate Committee on Social Thought. He holds both a medical degree and a doctorate in biochemistry, in which field he has published a number of research papers. But the major part of his career has been devoted to biomedical ethics, in which field he is something of a founding father, both through his writings and through his being a founding fellow and a member of the board of directors of the Hastings Center, Institute of Society, Ethics, and the Life Sciences. In the early 1970s, after several years of research at the National Institutes of Health, he served as Executive Secretary of the Committee on the Life Sciences and Social Policy of the National Research Council, National Academy of Sciences, after which he was a tutor at St. John's for a few years, while also serving as Research Professor in Bioethics in the Kennedy Institute at Georgetown University. At the University of Chicago, he was a founder and chairman of a degree program that ignores departmental boundaries to allow undergraduates to focus on fundamental texts and questions in a way that would not seem strange to Johnny's. Among the authors on whom he has concentrated in his teaching at Chicago have been Plato, Aristotle, Lucretius, Descartes, Rousseau, and Darwin. He has also taught classes on geometry, organism in the philosophy of nature, the human passions, nature and custom, courtship and civility. He's been a member and vice chairman of the Council of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And this year, he is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, DC. Among the topics on which he has written, on which he has testified before courts and other governmental bodies are organ transplantation, in vitro fertilization, care of the mentally retarded, assisted suicide, criteria for determining death, the duties of physicians, and patenting life. Some of his articles on the significance of biomedical science were collected for publication in a book entitled Toward a More Natural Science. More recently, he has published with James Q. Wilson a volume on the ethics of human cloning. He also has a book entitled The Hungry Soul, soon to be reissued in paperback on the relation between eating and human nature, ranging from the lowest level of metabolism through the higher level of sociality to the highest level of sanctification. It is a feast of interesting reflections on form and matter, the Homeric Cyclops, the Levitican dietary laws, and many other things. For some time, he has been studying the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis in particular, as a teaching about human nature he has published a number of articles on topics that include Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, Abraham as a husband, Abraham and Sarah as parents, and Jacob as a brother and as a father. These articles will eventually form a book on the education of the fathers as presented in Genesis. Dr. Cass's lecture tonight, a piece of that project, is entitled Paternity and Piety, Noah and His Sons. Please welcome Leon Cass. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be back at St. John's College, a place that I love and admire greatly. It's also a great honor to be asked to lecture during Parents Weekend 
on the occasion of what is for many of you your first reunion with your children or with your parents since they or you started college. Well do I remember our first parents weekend at another college when our firstborn tried to convince us unsuccessfully how much college had already changed her in the six weeks since she had left home. By her second year, college life had indeed changed her. She no longer ate the same food as the rest of the family. And by the time she graduated, she was indeed more knowledgeable, more mature, and more independent. But her learning and growing up were largely the result of extracurricular activities. What she studied in her classes played little part and touched her only superficially. No great surprise, for her college lacked a thoughtful curriculum and its faculty did not regard books as friends for life or for thinking about living well. Not so at St. John's College. Here the motto is, I make free adults out of children by means of books and a balance. Here great books are read and science is studied in a wisdom-seeking spirit. Here a well-wrought curriculum and a thoughtful community together aim at a deeper understanding of our humanity in the service of living a better and worthier life. In honor of Parents Weekend at the Great Books College, I have chosen to speak about parents and children, actually about fathers and sons, with the help of a story from the greatest book, The Book, whose first book, Genesis, abounds in stories about parents and children. I choose this theme and this book advisedly and for three reasons. First, everyone present has some experience with and interest in the subject of parents and children, and no doubt you have already given the matter some thought. If not, you certainly will do so, I am confident, after the first extended visit home from college, perhaps as soon as Thanksgiving. <laughs> Second, regarding this important subject, I believe that we Americans are being ill-served and badly taught by our current culture, so much so that we don't even know what we are missing. Third, I believe that biblical stories like the one we shall explore this evening are especially useful, and especially today, in helping us to see more clearly and deeply into the meaning of fatherhood and sonship. From experience with my own students, my guess is that many of you, in the absence of careful attention to the text, will be indifferent or even hostile to the moral sensibilities of our story. I hope by this lecture and the conversation that follows to get you to reconsider. I shall speak plainly and provocatively, I hope not too provocatively. There is no point, pedagogically speaking, in shoring up existing prejudices. Let me begin close to home, not with the Bible, but with our current culture, and introduce our theme with a story of my own, a true story that happened a few years ago. Standing in the large men's locker room at the National Capital YMCA, getting dressed after my swim and shower, I overheard a conversation taking place out of sight on the other side of my row of lockers. You wait right here. I'll be back soon after my shower. On my return from the shower a minute before, I had glimpsed out of the corner of my eye a young child, perhaps three years old or four, playing on the floor far down the neighboring aisle. A child much too small, thought I, to be left unattended amidst this motley crowd of unfamiliar men. While I was fantasizing about how I might abduct the boy for a few minutes just to teach the father a lesson, 
I heard another voice arresting the father's movement to the shower. You shouldn't bring her in here. Why not? Because of all the naked men. So what, replied the father. She sees me naked all the time and thinks nothing of it. How old is she? Four. She doesn't know or care anything about sex or even gender. You mean she doesn't know the difference between girls and boys? Sure, but it doesn't mean anything to her. Why are you so uptight? Because many people in here don't feel comfortable parading naked in front of young girls. Besides, don't forget, they lock people up who expose themselves before children, just like this. You have a sick mind, says the father, <laughs> and goes off to the shower. Well, thought I, having been taught a lesson and grateful that I had not carried out my mock abduction. <laughs> at least the little girl has a father who spends quality time with her on a weekend afternoon. When she grows up, she will perhaps come to regard her father and herself as just one of the boys. Socrates, who once playfully proposed common gymnasia for men and women, as well as communal rearing of children, must be chuckling, probably nervously, in Hades. It certainly is a new world, and not only in the gym. A few years ago in a class I was teaching on the book of Genesis, a bright, argumentative male undergraduate with a strong Jewish religious background took great exception to the fuss made in the Bible's early stories about nakedness. What's the big deal? What's wrong with seeing your father naked? I shower with my father all the time. We're pals. Love, camaraderie, and affection, yes. Awe, fear, reverence, shame, and modesty, no. Dad, he too is just one of the boys. Once upon a time, father was a figure of authority to every young boy. Today, many a young boy considers himself lucky just to have a father in the house. To be sure, authority may have been shared with mother, but papa was the imposing figure. His superior size and strength promised safety. His voice of authority laid down the rules and established reliable order. His patient instruction encouraged growth. At the same time, and on the other hand, father's power often inspired fear and awe. His moral authority, shame and guilt, and his superior competence, a sense of inadequacy which could sometimes lead to envy. And then there was his pride of place with mother, and all that that entailed, the so-called Oedipal problem made notorious by Freud. This highly complex aggregate of mixed feelings and attitudes makes son-to-father relationships very unusual. They certainly make difficult, if not impossible, any easygoing friendship, which usually requires and fosters equality. One cannot simply be friends with someone one holds in awe. Yet these sentiments, even the uncomfortable ones like awe, fear, and shame, are perfectly suited on the one side to the parental task of rearing, and on the other side to the possibility of inheriting not just life, but a decent way of life from those responsible for our proper cultivation and moral development. Precisely because he is capable of inspiring awe as well as security, shame as well as orderliness, distance as well as nearness, emulation as well as confidence, and fear as well as hope, 
the father is able to do the fatherly work of preparing boys for moral manhood, including eventually their own fatherhood. To be sure, the power can be abused. And even where parental intentions are purely benevolent, it is often difficult to inspire by word and deed the right mixture of those sentiments which properly encourage and those sentiments which properly restrain. More important, errant paternal conduct can easily betray the teachings paternal authority aims to impart. A philandering father once exposed has trouble teaching fidelity. Trust betrayed is hard to recover, and hypocrisy is often unforgiven, especially by one's children. Still, that and how father exercises paternal authority, and equally how boys come to terms with father, makes all the difference for the future life of the sons. One of our oldest stories of fathers and sons is the tale of Noah and his sons, the very story that so distressed my student. Coming early in the book of Genesis, it is the Bible's first tale of intergenerational conflict. Indeed, the first tale explicitly about fathers and sons. First tales in Genesis are often exemplary and paradigmatic. The story of Adam and Eve reveals fundamental and ineradicable tensions in the relationship of man and woman. The story of Cain and Abel exposes the fundamental rivalry that naturally accompanies the relations of brothers. We do well to consider these first tales closely. Before turning, however, to the first tale of Noah and his sons, I wish to make a few general remarks about the whole book of Genesis and to remind you of the context and background for the story. The book of Genesis is famously a book about beginnings. The beginning of the heavens and the earth, the beginning of human life on earth, the beginning of the people of Israel, starting with Father Abraham, and before, behind, and above all these temporal beginnings, the timeless and endless, timeless and enduring beginning that is God, creator of the world, maker of man in his own image, covenant maker with Abraham and Israel. But as a book, Genesis is also the beginning of a larger work, the Torah or Hebrew Bible, the law, the biblical teaching about how human beings ought to live, almost none of which teaching is given in Genesis itself. Thus, Genesis must function pedagogically as a prelude to the laws, primarily by making clear why the laws might be needed and for what sorts of human weaknesses and difficulties. By persuading the reader through its stories of the necessity of the laws, Genesis prepares the reader to find their demands less onerous. To accomplish this higher moral purpose, Genesis needs to be read as an account of human beginnings in a more than historical sense of beginning. Genesis's seemingly historical stories are in fact vehicles for revealing the permanent psychic and social elements or principles, that is the anthropological beginnings of human life in all their moral ambiguity, reason, speech, freedom, sexual desire, love of the beautiful, shame, guilt, anger, mortality, and the vexed relations between man and woman, brother and brother, father and sons, stranger and stranger, man and God. By holding up a mirror in which we readers can better see the reasons for the bittersweet bargain that is our human existence, Genesis properly read also provides in this self-recognition a powerful pedagogical beginning for the moral and spiritual education of the reader.
Central to Genesis's pedagogical purpose is its steady attention to the subject of fatherhood and the relations between fathers and sons. Though women figure prominently in many of the stories often playing vital and edifying roles, Genesis is mainly about the adventures of men, and especially of the Hebrew patriarchs and their male offspring. The reason for this emphasis, I contend, is not, as current prejudice has it, the sexist or patriarchal mentality of ancient Israel, but rather something close to the reverse. Men stand in greater need than women of such an education if they are to enter into God's chosen way for human beings. Accordingly, Genesis is a work largely devoted to the education of the biblical fathers to the great work of fatherhood, the task of transmitting not just life, but a way of life devoted to righteousness and holiness and looking up to the divine, rather than a way of life devoted to heroic quests for personal honor, honor and glory, to power and domination, or to wealth and pleasure, the ways of life pursued by most men left to their own devices. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, up to the call of Abraham, depict the largely uninstructed ways of mankind and make clear the enduring psychosocial obstacles to righteous living. Thereafter, Genesis narrates the lives of the patriarchs, showing both why they needed and how they received their education for proper fatherhood. Inter interestingly, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob receive different education as befits their different characters and circumstances and they appear to succeed in differing degrees. But because the text almost never pronounces moral judgment on any of its characters, it requires us to review their journeys and to judge them for ourselves. In this way, reading Genesis offers the possibility of a similar education for each subsequent generation of fathers. In every time and place, each of us can learn vicariously along with the patriarchs through their stories. Our paradigmatic father-son story occurs late in the 11th chapter pre-Abrahamic portion of Genesis. In this section, we are shown human beings living under a variety of social moral conditions, each of which proves unsatisfactory or unsustainable. First, in the Garden of Eden, there was simple innocence, a way of life that could not survive man's right to freedom and autonomy, which is identical to his disobedience. Next, there is the lawless condition outside the garden, beginning with Cain and Abel, with human beings living on the basis of their own inner judgments of good and evil. This condition issues first in fratricide and later in the war of each against all that leads God to wash out the violent world and start again with Noah, a man said to be righteous and simple in his generations. After the flood, there is instituted a new world order. First, Men acquire hope against natural cataclysm and trust in a long-term human future on the earth thanks to God's covenant, his unconditional promise made to all living creatures never again to cut off all flesh, never again to flood the earth. Second, men gain hope of protection also against the violence of other men. There is, for the first time, an institution of law, the so-called Noahide Code, which distinguishes the life of post-Diluvian man from the state of nature inhabited by his antediluvian forebears. Human beings rise above their animality by coming to live under the rule of laws, first among which is a law against murder, a law that teaches the equal worth of every human life. The question is this, are the Noahide law and covenant sufficient? 
Will the new world order instituted after the flood succeed? Let us see. The story of the sons of Noah, Genesis 9, 18 to 27, is the immediate sequel to the covenant following the flood. With the law now established, not the revealed parochial laws of Israel, but a universal law for all mankind called by a later tradition, natural law, all thought turns to the task of perpetuation. Will the fathers be able to transmit the proper way to their sons? The first story after the new covenant is, fittingly, precisely about the question of perpetuation and therewith about the problem of father and sons. It is also the beginning of an account of the subsequent differentiation of humankind into multiple nations, each with a different way of life, each tied perhaps to differences among earlier progenitors. Here is how it begins, and I hope all of you have copies of the text. I quote, And the sons of Noah that went forth from the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and of these was the whole earth overspread. Unquote. The story's introduction leads our imagination backward to the solitary ark of life afloat on the earth-covering waters, and forward to the future time in which the whole earth will be covered not with water, but with people. The narrative immediately focuses on the sons, and especially on Ham, the son who is not only centrally named, but who is mentioned a second time, this time as father, father of Canaan and the Canaanites, of this more later. But there is something strange about the order of names. Ham, whose name means hot or warm, is in fact, as we learn soon, the youngest son. The eldest is Japheth, whose name means expansion, though it's closely related to Yifa, a word meaning beauty. And central, the middle son, is Shem. His name means name, not only as an appellation, but also name in the sense of renown or respect. The order of birth and the order of naming are not the same. Nature and convention are not identical. We wonder whether the differences in the given names of the sons might not be revealing of differences in character. If so, the order of nature, the order of birth, might need to be replaced by an order of goodness or merit, a suggestion that in fact informs much of the early part of Genesis. In none of the patriarchal generations is the firstborn the right son for the work of perpetuation. We are moved to think about order, natural and conventional, not only by the puzzlements about the sequence of the sons, but also by the reference back to the departure from the ark after the flood, quote, that went forth from the ark. When the earth was fully dry, God had commanded Noah to leave the ark, and I quote, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, unquote, in keeping with the fact that life had entered the ark, male and female, but was to emerge, quote, after their families. But Noah reversed the order and emerged first with his sons and only then with his wife and his son's wife, quote, and Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Failing to give proper place to his wife, Noah has, perhaps inadvertently, failed to appreciate the right order of the household, failed to see that leading a family means more than sowing your seed, failed to recognize that it requires honoring both father and mother if transmission is to take place. Measure for measure, as we shall see, 
Noah will have his own paternal authority challenged by one of his sons. Noah, it must be admitted straight away, contributes to his own undoing. I quote, and Noah, the husbandman or master of the earth, began and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered in his tent, unquote. Noah's interest in the vineyard, like that of any human being, is understandable. The miraculous discovery of fermentation enables the fruit of the vine to yield more than mere sustenance. Wine to gladden the heart of man elevates the spirit and enables man to obtain also from the earth a partial relief from the curse upon the earth that makes him sweat for his bread. Yet at the same time, wine is the cause of drunkenness, of the erosion of the ability to make distinctions of chaos. The Hebrew word translated began also has the meaning of being profane, says the great 11th century Hebrew commentator Rashi, quote, he profaned or degraded himself, for he should have occupied himself first with planting something different. Given his ordeal upon the waters, one can perhaps understand Noah's turn to drink. <laughs> he may well have sought solace in the grape or even forgetfulness. Like the flood which covered over the earliest beginnings, so drink covers over all painful memories of destruction and desolation. Alternatively, being simple, as he has said earlier, Noah may just not have foreseen the power or consequences of wine. Many an innocent is unwittingly laid low by drink. Yet regardless of his motives and despite his possible desire to forget his origins, Noah in fact returns to the shameful naked condition of the aboriginal state, quote, he was uncovered in his tent. His drunkenness robs Noah of his dignity, his paternal authority, and his very humanity. It leaves him prostrate rather than upright. Stripped of his clothing, naked, exposed, and vulnerable to disgrace, he appears merely as a male, not as a father, not even as a humanized, rational animal. Noah will not be the last man who degrades and unfathers himself through drink. Parental authority and respectability are precarious indeed. But the real damage requires that his degradation be observed and observed by his sons. I quote, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, unquote. Ham is identified again as the father of Canaan. As we think about this father-son relation of Noah and Ham, we are invited to see that Canaan will later be affected by the present activity of his father, Ham. Ham here does two things. He sees and he tells. The first might have been accidental, though one wonders what he was doing in his father's tent. But the second clearly shows that for this son at least, it could just as well have been intentional. Ham looks upon his father's shame and traffics in it. Two questions occur to us. What does it mean to look upon the nakedness of one's father? And what sort of a human being would gladly do so and boast about it? In the story of man and woman in the garden, the discovery of nakedness is an epical event the immediate consequence of gaining knowledge of good and bad. Nakedness there means preeminently sexuality itself. Sexual neediness, its dependence on another person not under one's control, 
its resistance to self-command, and its link to our perishability are all reasons why sexual self-consciousness is colored with shame and why we move immediately and almost instinctively to cover up. But here in the Noah's story, we are considering the further meaning of seeing nakedness uncovered, of removing clothing, and not between man and woman, but between father and son. It is true that later in the Bible, the expression uncover the nakedness of is a euphemism for have sexual relations with. For example, the law of forbidden unions in Leviticus 18 is, expressly, is expressed entirely in the form, thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of so-and-so. For this reason, some commentators have suggested that Ham performed some abominable deed upon his drunken father. But there is no textual warrant for such a suggestion. I think one can show it's mistaken. Besides, what Ham did is more than sufficiently odious, even though he did not lay a hand on Noah. Noah, without his clothes and prostrate in his tent in a drunken stupor, lies dehumanized and unfathered, stripped of all human ways, though as a result of a peculiarly human way, the way of Bacchus. Ham's viewing confirms and ratifies his father's unfathering. To put it sharply, Ham's viewing and telling is metaphorically an act of patricide and incest, of overturning the father as a father. Without disturbing a hair on Noah's head, Ham engages in father killing. This overturning of the father is not the overturning of his biological paternity or the taking of his life. On the contrary, he is overturned precisely by being reduced to mere male source of seed. Eliminated is his father as authority, as guide, as teacher of law, custom, and a way of life. Ham sees and celebrates only the natural and barest fact of sex. He is blind to everything that makes transmission and rearing possible. As Robert Sachs from the Santa Fe campus, from whom I've learned much, has pointed out, Ham implicitly rejects the covenant and life under law, designed to replace the antediluvian world. Anticipating the various paganisms that will soon be founded by his descendants, Ham, the father of Canaan, gives primacy to the merely temporal and amoral beginnings. He looks back to pre-covenantal or natural origins. But the nature to which Ham looks is utterly demystified. His shamelessness not only violates paternal honor and authority, it also violates sexuality itself. To see this better, we need a brief excursion into the very complex subject of shame. Our English word shame is, I believe, too broad for the phenomenon. Help comes from the ancient Greeks who distinguished two kinds of shame, aishune and aidos. The origin of aishune is dishonor. We experience it in violating man-made codes and mores. The origin of aidos is awe. We feel it especially when we stand for, before things that naturally inspire reverence, things which are mysterious, things which have a power or a secret that we should respect. We feel aidos when we enter the darkness of a cave or a forest, when we enter a temple or a courtroom, when we stand before mighty human figures, a Churchill, Einstein, Tolstoy, or Kant, and we feel it or should feel it with regard to sex. 
Here, too, there is mysterious power to which we must pay respect. Here, too, there are invisible and secret meanings we ought to acknowledge. Not by accident that the Greeks call the sexual organs idoia, the awesome things. That is, shame and awe-inspiring things, not awesome in the current California meaning. <laughs> Ham looks without eidos, without awe, upon his father's sexuality. For him, there is nothing here to respect, not even as the mysterious source and ground of his own existence. His father's genitalia are a mere appendage. In shameless looking, their meaning is excised. Ham is thus guilty also of metaphorical castration. Moreover, that he speaks irreverently about what he has seen proves that he understands and celebrates what he has done. Ham, who transcends a most sacred if unpromulgated law, becomes the father of peoples, including the Canaanites and the Egyptians, whose abominable sexual practices will later be the antipodes to the Hebrew laws of purity. These we see later in Genesis itself, in the Egyptian pharaoh's predatory behavior toward women, in the sodomite attempts at homosexual violence against the strangers, in the Canaanite prince's rape of Dina, and especially in the incest of Lot's daughters upon their drunken father, a parallel tale to this story. Here, in the first generation, after the first institution of law, nature tosses up its first antinomian rebel, the first rebel against law. What sort of human being is Ham? What kind of person delights in rebelling against or exposing pre-existing law and authority? What kind of person is utterly without eidos, without awe-filled shame? Most often he is the would-be tyrant, a man who seeks self-sufficiency, who would, if possible, become his own father and author, whose creatureliness and dependence are an affront to his autonomous self-conception. Patricide and incest, both literal and metaphorical, are crimes of the tyrant, as we know from Sophocles' Oedipus Tyrannus. Like Oedipus, Ham commits metaphorical patricide, and his descendants practice literal incest. One of his descendants, Nimrod, whose name connotes rebelliousness, will conquer an empire and will seek to make himself the all-powerful and self-sufficing lord of the earth. But tyrants are not the only antinomians. The philosopher, too, sees through the arbitrary character of law and custom and looks to nature, all in an effort to learn the unvarnished truth. Even that greatest philosophical friend of moral virtue, Aristotle, insists that eidos is not a virtue. Put in its best light, Ham's deed might be construed as an act of shameless curiosity, of an unbridled willingness to look at or into anything, of a desire to know the origins, and an unwillingness to have them obscured by either forgetfulness or custom, of a desire to see nature clearly, by and for oneself, utterly uncovered, demystified, and unhidden. After all, the Greek word for truth, aletheia, means unhiddenness, that which has been brought out of hiding, that which now lies uncovered and exposed to the mind's eye. Ham's delight in telling what he has seen inclines us to think him more tyrannical than philosophical. Not before Nietzsche did the true philosopher shout from the rooftops his privately uncovered subversive knowledge. 
seeing for oneself was in the greatest philosophers of antiquity generally combined with reticence and with a philanthropic disposition to preserve a salutary adherence to law for their compatriots. See, for example, Plato's Crito. But from the Bible's point of view, it seems to make little difference. With respect to the law, and hence with respect to the crucial matter of fathers and sons, the philosopher and the would-be tyrant are equally suspect. The disinterested gazing upon of the philosopher and the rebellious seeing through of the tyrant are both against the law, are both impious. For the sake of law-abidingness, and this means for the sake of righteousness, the attitude most needful will reverently let sleeping fathers lie and will act to cover them up. Filial piety is the indispensable partner of law-abidingness and righteousness. Noah's other two sons are more properly disposed. One does not envy them their situation. They were no doubt shocked by their brother's ham's disclosure, if not by the fact of his retailing it. Quite likely they had never before seen or known their father to be humbled or even at a loss. Upon the sea of troubles, Noah had commanded an entire microcosm and presided over it with full authority. And Noah had been granted a special relationship to God. Could Ham's tale really be true? What should a son do on hearing report of father's disgrace? Should he go and see for himself? Should he ignore the knowledge, preferring disbelief? Or should he act benevolently while remaining in the dark about the truth? Shem and Japheth rise to the occasion. They choose the latter course. I quote, And Shem and Japheth took a cloak and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and the nakedness of their father they saw not. No sooner told, Shem and Japheth moved to act in their father's defense and to come to his rescue. Rather than join in Ham's shameful boast, they reverently cover their father's nakedness. Walking backward together, they gently deposit a draping cloak from off their shoulders. Deliberately, they see nothing. They refuse to share in their father's shame. Indeed, they cover it up. We readers are touched by this display of loyalty and filial piety. The decency and respect of Shem and Japheth is immediately winning. Even more do we admire the perfect way they found delicately to correct the problem without participating in it. They did not first look and only then cover. The deed was elegantly just right to the occasion. But in our own admiration, we should not overlook the stark implication. Their piety is a kind of willing blindness. They knowingly choose to live leaving some things in the dark without pressing back to the naked truth about temporal beginnings or ultimate origins. They embrace authority and implicitly life under law. When he discovers his disgrace, Noah does not take his shame lying down. Angrily, he retaliates. And for the first time in the biblical narrative, we hear Noah speak. Quote, and Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Noah's anger is surely expected 
as rage is the usual response to being shamed. A man who is put to shame harbors a hatred keener than any other, largely because the observer compels him to confront himself in his own meanness and ugliness. Witnesses establish our own disgrace beyond our power of forgetting and remembering. And the horror of it all is magnified many times over when disgrace is witnessed by those we love, and perhaps worst of all, by our children. But certain features of Noah's discovery and reaction are surprising. How did Noah, none done, sorry, how did Noah know who had done what? Especially if we are right and nothing in fact was done by Ham other than looking. Awakening, Noah must have found himself covered with the cloak and inferred the rest. Those who covered him were not those who first saw him, and knowing his sons, Noah knew which was which. Ham, the hot one, in this respect too, he is like the tyrannical Oedipus, whose ruling passion was anger, had no doubt given earlier indications of disrespect and anger. But in his own anger, Noah retaliated not by cursing Ham, but by cursing Canaan. This requires explanation. A little reflection shows the fittingness of Noah's response. Measure for measure, Noah unfathers Ham by driving a wedge between him and his youngest son, Canaan. Should the curse be realized or effective, Canaan, whose name is from a root meaning to be low, will blame his own misfortunes on his father's misdeed, precisely in this matter of filial piety. Ham, who seeks to free himself from paternal and authority and law, will be held responsible by his son as a paternal authority for the evils that befall that son. Moreover, the precise evil to be suffered by Ham's descendants is also fitting. Those who would live without law or parental authority are destined to live under slavery. Those who deny covenant are bound to accept the rule of the stronger, that is slavery, precisely what the rule of law was first intended and instituted to prevent. But however fitting, is it just to visit the sins of the fathers upon the sons? How could this be fair to Canaan, who himself did or saw nothing? This is a vexed question, yet it takes us to the heart of the matter regarding fathers and sons. It may or may not be just, but it is almost inevitable that children suffer from the deeds of their fathers, and not just because some willful or punitive God intervenes to guarantee it. On the contrary, the deeds and beliefs of the fathers shape the sons, whether by conformity or by rebellion, just as they shape also the world that the sons will inherit. What kind of sons would a father like Ham be likely to rear? If they follow his example, they will not heed his or any other authority. Thus, like him, they become antinomian. On the other hand, if they rebel against his example, they might come to wish for some orderly and traditional alternative but they will not be able themselves to supply what has been destroyed. Consider in this connection the sorts of children spawned today by our most permissive or rebellious parents, the radicals, the hippies, or even the ones who merely want to be pals with their kids. The children who imitate their parents perpetuate the disorder. The ones who turn away are, absent some fortuitous educational encounter, likely recruits for the Reverend Moon or our New Age religions. A curse is not exactly a punishment, 
and it need not imply some new contrary event or occurrence. It may simply be the unavoidable consequence of some unsavory or reprehensible experience. Having seen what he should not have seen, Ham cannot escape into blindness. He is cursed to have that experience permanently with him, and the memory of it will color everything he does and feels, including how he is with his own sons. Thus one might wish to consider Noah's remark less as causing or wishing than as prophesying, of course with righteously indignant satisfaction that Canaan will be cursed. Yet even if he is only endorsing and not as is more likely calling down the curse, Noah's act is not altogether kosher. It partakes of the terrible problem of administering punishment to your own. One cannot cleanse pollution of the nest caused by one of the nestlings without further befalling it. And when the innocent are made to suffer with the guilty, there is ground for later hatred and revenge. Will not some descendants of Canaan later punish the line of Shem? Will not Noah's angry misdeed on the innocent Canaan come back to haunt the equally innocent sons of Shem? And leaving later consequences aside, is there not something wrong with calling down a curse on young Canaan, even if it is, as I have argued, an absolutely perfect response to his father's misconduct? A later biblical echo of the present story confirms our criticism of Noah's response. In Leviticus 18, the law prescribing forbidden sexual unions and unchastity is promulgated beginning with the injunction, after the doings of the land of Egypt wherein ye dwelt shall ye not do, and after the doings of the land of Canaan whither I shall bring you shall ye not do, neither shall ye walk in their statutes." Unquote. There soon follow 14 verses detailing those forbidden sexual unions, each verse proscribing uncovering of nakedness, which we assume were common practices among the Egyptians and the Canaanites, people descended from Ham, the first uncoverer of nakedness. The list of sexual misconduct is, however, interrupted by a stark prohibition regarding child sacrifice. I quote, and thou shalt not give any of thy seed to set them apart to Malach, neither shalt thou profane the, profane the name Shem of thy God. I am the Lord, unquote. Could this be a belated gloss on Noah's willingness to sacrifice his grandson Canaan to Malach? simply to avenge his own son's misconduct, and worse, to avoid accepting responsibility for his having disgraced himself in the first place? Did not Noah, by his fierce act of revenge, join in the Canaanite ethos that he was cursing? Let us generalize the question. May we fathers ever be forgiven for wishing that our grandsons pay back our sons with in-kind rebellion and disrespect? especially when we have not comported ourselves respectfully and reverently? Difficult children are often difficult, especially with regard to our shortcomings. Holding themselves as partial outsiders, they see more and are not ashamed to speak up. They criticize our ways, try our patience, challenge our wisdom, and test our virtue. The more able and spirited they are, the more trouble they can cause. Moreover, contrary sons are born even to thoroughly decent and righteous fathers who, if they are to remain righteous, do not therefore excuse themselves from the paternal task. On the contrary, it is the difficult sons who often teach us painfully just why and how the paternal work must be done 
even against the odds, and not least because they are frequently more interesting and promising than their more dutiful brothers. Noah follows his curse with a blessing. This speech, together with the curse on Canaan, is the first directly quoted human speech after the flood. It is also Noah's last reported deed, his death at age 950 years, 350 of which were after the flood, will re be reported in the very next verse. The blessing itself is remarkable. Quote, and he said, blessed be the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be their servant. God enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be their servant, unquote. Rather than bless Shem, Noah blesses Yahweh, the God of Shem, just as, rather than curse Ham, Noah cursed Canaan. According to Kasudo, the formula, blessed be Yahweh, connotes thanksgiving and praise to the Lord who performed a beneficent act. He interprets the present verse to mean, quote, thanksgiving and praise be to Yahweh who guided Shem in a good way and taught him to conduct himself with decency and all other virtues, unquote. But how exactly did the Lord guide Shem? Overt intervention did not take place as far as we know, and Noah in drunken stupor could only be guessing. Yet it turns out that Noah speaks truly and better than he knows. Noah divined that Shem's conduct was inspired by pious reverence, not only for him, but also and especially for the divine. Shem had managed to see, however dimly, in the authoritative relation of father and son, an image of the relation of God and man, and therewith a path to the holy. In the experience of awe and reverence before paternal authority is the germ of awe and reverence for the divine. Filial piety points to and reflects piety simply. As the stance of Ham points downward to Canaanite paganism and depravity, so the stance of Shem points upward to sacred and the holy. Shem, who seems to have initiated the move to cover his father's nakedness, the Hebrew text, by the way, uses the singular of the verb took, and it says quite literally, and Shem took and Japheth a cloak. Shem and his older brother, Japheth, turn out to be more pious even than their father, though they probably learned their lesson from him. Their formative, the formative experience in their lives would certainly have been the flood and the building of the ark. They could not help but be impressed by their father, who without raising a question or uttering a sound, obeyed God's shipbuilding instructions to the letter. And when God spoke directly to them in making his covenant, they experienced personally the God who cares for man and to whom the fatherly human being points, as generous source and sustainer of life, as awesome source of order and law. Common experiences are, however, not necessarily experienced in common. Different sons, different dispositions. Shem, he the man of the name and the progenitor of Abraham, is most closely connected with holiness. And Abraham, with massive help from Yahweh, the God of Shem, as tutor, will perform supremely well the paternal work of transmitting a new way. Japheth, the enlarged or beautiful or noble one, he is the progenitor of the Greeks, must dwell under the protection of holiness, quote, in the tents of Shem. But Ham, for reasons unknown, marches to a different drummer, deaf to the voice of authority and the divine call. 
the case of Ham clearly shows us the insufficiency of relying on nature or family alone to ensure decency and to guarantee the transmission of righteous ways. Filial piety and paternal excellence, both indispensable for moral education, are precarious virtues, always in short supply, today more than ever. Returning then to my beginning stories. Modern times have produced a third human type, neither tyrant nor philosopher, who is also deaf to authority and who knows neither awe nor reverence. Democratic man. For him, all hierarchy is suspect, all distinctions odious, all claims on his modesty or respect confining. Last names or even familial titles like uncle and aunt are much too formal. Honor and respect, fear and awe, and filial piety seem increasingly vestiges of an archaic world. Fathers find it easier not to exercise authority. Sons find it easier not to recognize it. Sex, utterly demystified, is now sport and chatter. Nakedness is no big deal. Many fathers and mothers traffic shamelessly in their own uncovered nakedness. Many sons and daughters, inured to shamelessness, ex shameless exposure, see no reason to cover it up. Severed now from their source in what is truly venerable, the customs of respect for elders and sexual modesty become anemic. Increasingly petrified, they crumble beneath the avalanche of equality, explicitness, and the right to be myself. No need for reverence or judgment. We're all pals now. But we should not be self-deceived. The sins of unfatherly fathers are still being visited on the sons and the grandsons. Canaan will still, and again, be cursed to live slavishly like a pagan. If you need a monument, just look around. Thank you very much. <laughs>